So who invented the synagogue? The first thing, what is a synagogue? So we know we, we have a Yiddish word for it, shul. We have a Hebrew word, bet hakneset. So synagogue is actually, as we use in English, is actually a Greek word, synagoga, which means place of gathering. It's a place to gather. It is really a Greek translation of the Hebrew word bet hakneset. Bet hakneset means the place of gathering. So synagogue is simply a Greek translation of bet hakneset. In Aramaic, it was called Beknishta. Beknishta also means the same thing, a place of gathering. So the synagogue in its uh, basically means a place of gathering. Now, the concept of a synagogue, a place to pray as we know it, is not mentioned anywhere explicitly in the Torah, nor is it mentioned anywhere in Tanakh, anywhere in the Hebrew scriptures, in the, in, in the biblical scriptures. However, according to Yonatan ben Uziel, which is an Aramaic, an Aramaic translation of the Torah, one of the earliest translations and earliest commentaries of the Torah that date back to Second Temple period, um, <coughs> we are told that when in the Torah, when Moses appoints leaders, um, the, Yonatan ben Uziel says leader, the role of the leaders will be to tell the people how to pray in the Bet HaKnesset. That will be the role of the leaders. What does he mean by that? So the Torah, as we mentioned, does not explicitly tell us to pray anywhere. It doesn't say you shall pray. But it does say, You must serve Hashem your God. And our oral tradition tells us that that is a reference to the mitzvah of prayer. That it is a mitzvah for us to pray, both to praise God and ask God for what we need. However, the biblical commandment as given by Moses did not give us specific structure for prayer. You could pray whenever you wanted, however you wanted. It was only much later during the um, days of the men of the great assembly, the Anche Knesset Hagadola, um, the great assembly, that the, the, it was only later during their days that they actually s created a structure for prayer. Three, pray three times a day, pray with a minion, with a quorum of pen. They created the structure for prayer. But before that, for the first thousand years of Judaism, there was no structure for prayer. Nevertheless, Yonatan ben Uziel is telling us that since the days of Moses, they had Bet HaKneset, a place where people would gather to pray. They didn't have set words to pray or set times to pray, um, set prayers, but rather the leaders would compose prayers whenever they felt necessary, and the people would gather together in these Bet HaKneset, in these places of gathering, in order to pray. And presumably that's where the name Bet HaKneset comes from, or synagogue in Greek. It doesn't mean a house of prayer, that would be Bet Tzfilah in Hebrew, but it rather means a house of gathering a place to gather, because it would be a place where people would gather, and among the things that people would gather for would be they would gather to pray. It wasn't a set structured thing, but whenever the people had something to thank God for, 
whenever the community had, were in need, they would gather together in a communal place and they would pray together over there. Their leaders would compose prayers for all the people to recite. And presumably that's where the name Bet Knesset House of Gathering came from. We can further assume that this Bet Knesset was not just for prayer. In its origin, it would be used for study of Torah, for reading Torah. We, of course, read the Torah today as part of our prayers, but we know that reading the Torah was done publicly from the days of Moses. They would read from the Torah publicly, so they would read from the Torah in their Bet HaKnes in the House of Gathering. They would presumably study the oral Torah as well over there, and it was also just a general public place when they needed to gather for different reasons, they would gather in this Bet HaKnesset, in this house of gathering, in the synagogue. In Jeremiah, when he describes the destruction of the first temple, this is before prayer as we know it was created at the beginning of the second temple. When Jeremiah discusses the destruction of the first temple, how the, the Babylonians entered Jerusalem and destroyed Jerusalem, he mentions th that the Babylonians destroyed the Bet Ha'am, literally the house of the people. What is the house of the people? So Rashi and Radak and other commentaries say house of the people was the Bet Ha'kneset, the house of gathering. In other words, it was the public place where they would gather for prayer, for study, and for other public events. So every major community would have had this Bet <laughs> Knesset, this public place where they would gather for communal prayer, study, and other public purposes. And there was a, and it was not only called Bet HaKnesset, it appears to have also been called Bet Ha'am, House of the People. In other words, where the people got together, and we have other references um, for it being called at that during this period, Bet Ha'am, the House of the People. So it was a public place. And so, um, and presumably every community had them. Jerusalem had one. Um, and every major Jewish community had a public place. Um, today they'd call it a community center. Um, but then it was, a, it was a public place where they would pray uh, for public prayer, as well as use for Torah study and other public purposes. When the Jews were exiled to Babylon, this is still again before the structure of prayer as we know it was created, at the beginning of the second temple. When the Jews were exiled to Babylon, the Talmud tells us that they took the stones of the temple with them and they used those stones to build the synagogue called Shafviyativ of Naharda'ah. Naharda'ah became known as, was also known as Gola, the exile, because <coughs> it became the main Jewish city in Babylon. It was the home of the Rej Geluta, of the Exilarch, the king of the Jews in Babylon, and the main yeshiva in Babylon. It was the main city of Jews in Babylon. And there, in that, where they had settled when they first came to Babylon, and they lived there. First, they lived there continuously for some 700 years until Nahardah was destroyed in a war. And for during that period, for that entire period, this synagogue, Shaviyativ, stood in Nahardah that had been built with stones of the temple. Now, this was, again, before there was structured prayer as we know it, but they still had these public places they would build for public prayer, for study, and for other public purposes. And they were called Bet HaKnesset, 
or in Greek, you'd call it synagogue. After the second temple was built, the Knesset Hagdola, the great assembly, whom we spoke about a couple weeks ago, created the prayer system that we know, requiring us to pray three times a day, writing the Amida, the Oshimona uh, Esrei, the silent prayer that we say every time we pray, um, the blessings before, um, other parts of the prayer. They also created the system that one should, since we have a tradition, that um, Jewish Jews are usually, um, God usually answers our prayer when we pray with a, um, with a quorum of 10, because God's presence, Shechina, is found among us. So they instituted that we should always pray with a minion. So now, once the men of the great assembly, and this is at the very beginning of the second temple about 2,300 years ago, once the men of the great assembly created the prayer system as we know it, now the synagogue became an important place for prayer. It wasn't just used for prayer in time of need or when there were public prayer gatherings, but it was now used three times every day. Every Jewish male would go to, adult Jewish male would go to synagogue three times every single day in order to pray with a minyan. So now became what the synagogue continued, but it now would be used much, much, much more. People would be praying regularly. And so as a result, during this period, during the second, second temple period, we know that Jews built many, many synagogues. Um, we found a number of ancient synagogues from the second temple period in Israel itself. They found in Mitzada, um, in English it's called Masada, um, a fortress that um, Herod had built. There was a synagogue there in Gamla, um, in the ruins of Gamla, a um, town in the Golan Heights. There's an old synagogue in Beit Sha'an, um, right, near, right near Tiberias. There's a uh, ancient synagogue and many other places that found the ruins of synagogues um, that date back to the second temple period while the second temple was still standing. Outside of Israel, we found ancient synagogues from that period in Egypt, in Syria, in Greece, in Italy. There's been any places where we know that Jews lived during this period. We have found ancient synagogues. The Talmud describes the synagogue in Alexandria. Alexandria was the largest Jewish community in the world outside of Israel um, during a, a, a large period of the Second Temple. Babylon, of course, had many more Jews, but Alexandria, they were all concentrated in a single metropolis in a single very large city. And there in Alexandria, the Talmud says there was a synagogue that was so large that you could not hear from one end to the other, to the point that you could not hear the chazan, you couldn't hear the cantor if you stood in the back of the synagogue. And so they would have someone standing on the bima in the middle of the synagogue waving a flag to know when it was time to answer amen. Because otherwise there was no way to know it was too big. So it gives you, but there were synagogues, in fact, near Alexandria with the uh, archaeologists about 100 years ago found a stone inscription that reads, this synagogue was dedicated to King Ptolemy and Queen, Queen Benedicti, the sister wife and their children. That's what they, um, in uh, old Greek, in Greek, 
um, this, there's this plaque that they found or the stone they found that had this engravement. Presumably, that was the dedication on the synagogue. Um, Ptolemy would be the Egyptian emperor um, at the time, Greek Egyptian emperor um, during the, <clears throat> before the Roman conquest of Egypt um, would have been the one presumably who either funded the synagogue or um, supported their building of the synagogues. They dedicated it to him. I guess not much has changed in two and a half thousand years. Our synagogues are still full of plaques of all, with all the names of donors um, or people who may have helped build the synagogue. So by the time of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, the second temple that is, um, that we mentioned on Tisha B'Av this past Thursday, um, just under 2,000 years ago, we are told in the Talmud there were 394 synagogues in Jerusalem. Which is not surprising. We know there was a very, very large number of people. Josephus says that Jerusalem was a city of a million people. So it's not surprising there should be that many synagogues. Um, today, where the city of Jerusalem is pro approaching um, that, num that population size that it had um, in its heyday at the end of the Second Temple, um, there's probably a similar number of synagogues, if not more. Um, so it should come as no surprise that there were hundreds of synagogues in Jerusalem when it was a very, very large city. And it appears that like today, um, from records that we have from this period of different synagogues, we have records both in Jewish sources and in other sort, non-Jewish sources of synagogues in many, many different places, just about wherever Jews lived, there were synagogues. It appears that there were also Jews from different places created their own synagogues with their own customs. So we find within Jerusalem, there were synagogues for Jews from different diasporas. So Jews that had moved to Jerusalem from other places created their own diaspora synagogue, presumably where they had their own customs that had developed over time, very similar to what we see today, um, where Jews came from multiple places um, to a single place. Each um, diaspora builds its own synagogue where they're able to retain their customs. Today we have Sephardic synagogues and uh, Yemenite synagogues and Eastern European synagogues and, and, um, and German synagogues and um, Hungarian. We have many different traditions in Moroccan. We have many different traditions and customs. And so it appears that this, these variations in custom go back to Second Temple period already. And in Jerusalem itself, there's evidence that there were many different synagogues for Jews from different places. Every community essentially created from a different place, created their own synagogue. And so um, as a result, through, since the days of the destruction of the temple, as Jews have been exiled throughout the world, we built synagogues in every place where we lived. And so um, in many places where Jews once lived, um, Spain, where they were um, expelled from other places, there are still buildings that can be re are recognized that they were ancient synagogues um, that our ancestors had built. And then of course today, um, Jews, wherever they live, build synagogues as well. And we have synagogues in almost every country in the world today. Now in Yiddish, well, the word synagogue we said is Greek, synagoga um, is Greek. The Hebrew word is Bet Knesset, house of gathering, which is the same as, has the same meaning as synagogue. In Aramaic, it was Beik Nishta, uh, which is also house of gathering. Um, in Yiddish, we call the synagogue a shul. Now, shul is German for school. And um, in Italy also, 
Jews would call the synagogue scholar, which is Italian scholar, which is Italian for school. And presumably that's because in early Ashkenazic period, Jews would um, would have the schools where their children would be taught would be in the synagogue. It's synagogue in Spanish as well. That's the Greek. Um, but in Yiddish, we call it, and Jews called it shul, presumably because it was the school as well. In other words, the schools were based within the synagogue and therefore became known as shul. And even with time, as the schools moved out of the synagogues into separate buildings, um, the synagogue still became re retained its name as shul, which is really a um, school. Um, in Yiddish, to differentiate between the synagogue and the shul, we call the synagogue, uh, sorry, the, between the synagogue and the school, we call the synagogue shul and the school shule, which are pretty similar and essentially the same word, um, but the synagogue, presumably the name shul came because it was a school at one point. So what is the main purpose of the synagogue? Of course, is for communal prayer. Jews go to synagogue <laughs> three times a day to pray. And uh, many who don't go every day to the synagogue and uh, would go on Shabbos because on Shabbat we have more time. You're not working, it's a time that people are able to go to the synagogue. But in addition to being a place of prayer, the synagogue has always been a place of study. As we mentioned, even before um, the, the prayers were permanent or fixed at a set time, um, even before we, the prayers were fixed or at a set time, we always would, uh, <coughs> uh, th there would always be study in the synagogue. We would read the Torah in the synagogue. Later, when the men of the Great Assembly structured the prayer, they added the Torah reading, the three-time-a-week Torah reading that goes back to Moses, Monday, Thursday, and Shabbat, they added it into the prayer. So we read the Torah as part of the um, prayer service. So it's also a place to read Torah. And it also is a place for study in general. Now, many Jewish communities historically had a place called Bet Midrash. Bet Midrash, as opposed to Bet Knesset, is a house of study. And most Jewish communities had Batei Midrash, houses of study, in addition to synagogues. However, the um, the houses of study, the Bet Midrash was not exclusive to study. They usually prayed there as well. And the Bet HaKnesset, the synagogue, was not exclusive to prayer. They usually would study there as well. Um, often, this was the study. There would be classes in almost every synagogue before prayers. After prayers, people would come a little early to, uh, to join a Torah class or stay a little after the prayer to join a Torah class, sometimes in the afternoon. Mincha, the afternoon prayer, would be done right before sunset, and then the evening prayer would be done right after it gets dark, which is about a half hour or so gap. And during that half hour, most synagogues would offer, a, would offer classes during that time, or people would study alone. So the synagogue was not only a place of prayer, but it's also always been a place of study. In addition, synagogues have always served as the official place for communal gatherings. Whenever the, there were communal events, they were always done in the synagogue. Public events were generally done in the synagogue. It remained a bit Knesset, a house of gathering in general. Um, it was where often in most communities, the synagogue was where the communal leadership would meet, where they would do um, town meetings in the synagogue. Um, it was also a place where the Beth Din, the 
local court, a Jewish court, would meet um, in the synagogue as well. So it was always a, and is still, of course, a place, a general place of gathering. And of course, people always use the shul, the synagogue, to, as a chance to schmooze, catch up um, before and uh, after davening, um, before and after their services. It's always also been a social place. You know, we should be careful throughout the generations. Uh, our leaders have warned time and time again that it is absolutely forbidden to speak during davening, to speak during services. So while davening is going, one is forbidden to speak, and uh, one should never catch up or schmooze during davening. It seems to be a very, very difficult thing to do, given that in every generation um, for thousands of years, our leaders have rallied against speaking in shul, um, and uh, so they seem, it seems to have been an ongoing battle, um, yet I should be clear that it's absolutely forbidden to speak in shul during davening, but still people can socialize before, after, um, and so it's also a place, really, a social place. So what does the synagogue entail? How is the synagogue built? <laughs> so we are told that we should build our synagogues big and nice, we should make it the biggest and nicest building in town. Now, this has been a challenge in a lot of places when we lived among our non-Jewish neighbors. Um, in Europe, in the Middle East, where our Christian and Muslim neighbors were very, very self-conscious about our synagogues. And they were always very concerned that our synagogues should be smaller than their churches or mosques. And they had rules to make sure that however big our synagogues were, they were smaller than our churches and mosques. And for that reason, until really the late 18th, the late 19th century, um, there weren't very many big shoals in Europe or in the Middle East because we were very limited as to how big we could make our shoals or our synagogues. Um, it was only in the late 19th century with emancipation in Central and Western Europe um, well, then even in Eastern Europe in the 20th century, that they really began to build these big, beautiful synagogues. Uh, and most of those big, fancy synagogues you'll see in Europe today um, date back, they're pretty recent, they date about back to the late 19th or early 20th century um, here in the United States. Similarly, we've built big, beautiful synagogues, not having a limit on, uh, being, on what we're allowed to build, which we did have throughout much of our history. So our synagogues should ideally face Jerusalem um, when we pray. We know already in the book of Daniel, when Daniel prayed, he prayed, prayed facing Jerusalem here in the United States. That would be facing, uh, facing east. Um, if you are elsewhere, you are, wherever you are, you would face in the direction. If you are in, when, for the um, scholars of the Talmud who lived in Babylon, they always faced west. Uh, but you see, you always face whatever direction we face, the direction of Jerusalem. Now, in front of the synagogue is an Aron Kodesh, or Holy Ark. And this is a, it is named after the Holy Ark, which was a box that, um, an ark meaning a box that we had in the Holy of Holies in the temple. Um, but the Holy Ark over here is not in the synagogue, it's not a box, but it's rather a cupboard. Um, where the Torah scrolls are kept. So because we read the Torah in the synagogue, we put the Torah scrolls in the front um, in order to honor them, um, in order to honor the Torah, 
and they're put in a um, in this arc um, uh, in this arc or this big cupboard in the front that is usually made very very um, usually very made very fancy or very nice um, in Bnei Brak there's a famous yeshiva that has a golden arc um, that actually was transported from Italy um, it was in a synagogue in Italy and um, when the community dissipated was destroyed in the Holocaust um, the ark was later brought over to Israel uh, but there are many, many, you, uh, you go into a synagogue, you'll see uh, the arcs are always very fancy. In <laughs> Ashkenazic synagogues, the tradition is to have a parochet or a curtain in front of the ark, as um, we had in the Holy of Holies. It was a curtain covering the Holy, uh, in front of the Holy of Holies. So, so too, um, the arcs always have a curtain in front. In Sephardic synagogues, uh, Sephardic do not place curtains in front. They just have regular doors at the front of their um, at the front of their uh, uh, over covering the ark. Now, above the ark, there is a lamp. We put a lamp that we call the Ner Tamid, or ongoing flame. And it reminds us <laughs> of the menorah in the temple. It used to be a fire, uh, a lamp, a fire lamp. Nowadays we have electricity, so it's usually you'll see an electrical lamp sitting in front of the um, in front of the ark, um, hanging in front of the ark. Now, in the uh, in front of the ark, usually to the right of the ark, is the amud. The amud is the lectern that the cantor uses. Um, or leader uses to lead prayers from. Um, the amud, the lectern with a cantor stands on, um, should, be the, uh, should be facing the front. Doesn't, the cantor does not face the people, rather faces Jerusalem when he prays. And so, um, so the cantor faces the front. And usually synagogues are built with acoustics, uh, at least the bigger ones are built with acoustics or a rounded, um, a slanted um, wall above the ark in order to allow when he pray, when the cantor prays to allow the the sound to uh, bounce off the wall and uh, go back to the people so they can hear even though he's not facing them now in the middle of the synagogue we have a platform or a table that is called the bima that is used for reading the torah <laughs> the bima is similar to the altar that we had in the temple itself and um, and so and we have this bima that is used for the Torah to sit on. In Sephardic synagogues, the bima is flat. In Ashkenazic synagogues, the bima is always on a slant. Um, it's slanted upwards, and that's because of a debate as to how ideally the Torah should stand. Should it stand upright, as Sephardic Torahs do, um, laying on a flat bima, or should it be slanted? And that's how Ashkenazic Torahs are. They sit flat on the bima um, on a slant. So, and then the bima is often, though not always, on a raised platform. So um, often there's a raised platform and the bima itself stands on this raised platform so the people reading the um, Torah stand above the congregation. We've actually found in the synagogue in Bet Shan, dating back to the second temple period, we found a stone, massive square or rectangular stone um, that appears to have, with decorations on it, that appears to have been carved to serve as the bima in their synagogue um, in Beit Shad. Now, <coughs> in Ashkenazic synagogues, people sit in pews or chairs 
facing the front, facing east, facing the front of the synagogue. In many smaller or more, more homey synagogues, um, this was very common in Eastern Europe, they would call these small synagogues shtibol. Shtibol means small home from the word shtub in Yiddish. Um, and a shtibol was just a small homey synagogue. And um, the idea was to build synagogues that were more comfortable um, than the big, nice synagogues. And um, so in the shtibols, they often, rather than having people in pews or in chairs facing the front, they would have tables with people sitting around tables. This was very common in the Hasidic community, to have shtibols or small synagogues, small group that, um, that small groups would come to pray where they would sit around tables rather than sitting in pews. In Sephardic synagogues, um, the custom has always been for people to sit on the sides facing the center. So rather than facing the front, they would always face the center. In, order, in other words, that way they would face the Torah when the Torah was being read. Um, and they would turn towards the front when, um, for the prayers that one has to face Jerusalem. Um, originally, Sephardic synagogues, and if you go to some of the older synagogues today in, um, today in Israel, the people sat um, on, everyone sat on carpets on the floor. Um, most of the older synagogues would have a little ledge along the wall for older people who found it hard to sit on the floor and they would sit on this ledge um, usually a stone ledge or they would put a cushion on and um, then everybody else sat cross-legged on the floor which was common in, East, in the middle east um, today Sephardic synagogues um, in the western world all have chairs so now it appears that originally it appears that originally men and women sat together in the synagogue. The first synagogue where men and women were separated was in the temple itself. In the temple itself, in front of the courtyard of the temple, there was a very large courtyard known as the Ezrat Nashim, the women's courtyard. The name is a little misleading. It wasn't a courtyard for women, it was rather the synagogue. It served for public gatherings. The Bet Knesset, it was a place for gathering um, where they had their Sukkot celebrations there. It was a place where the king read from the Torah to, for the community. It was a place for other public gatherings. And of course it served as the synagogue in the temple. It was a large open air synagogue. Um, it was just a courtyard. And um, it served as a synagogue. There was a certain point during the second temple when there was a problem that men and women were mingling inappropriately in this Ezrat Nashim, in this public gathering place. And so therefore the sages had them build a balcony in this courtyard um, for the women. The men were downstairs in the courtyard and the women would go upstairs in the balcony. And at this point, this is again during the second temple, the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Council of Judaism that makes rules for Judaism that are binding on all Jews, instituted that men and women should always sit separately in the synagogue. So whenever we are praying, whenever there's a time of prayer, they instituted that men and women should sit separately. And so, so that has been the tradition um, for the over 2,000 years since. And uh, now in most traditional synagogues, and you'll see this if you go to Europe in any of the synagogues, women as in um, as it was in the temple, the women would sit in a balcony above the men. So the men were downstairs, the women would sit upstairs in a balcony. This gave them a much better view of the prayers from their position in the balcony. They were able to see everything going on. 
Um, in smaller synagogues where there were no balconies, women and men would be separated by a partition. Today in the United States, most synagogues no longer have balconies. Uh, most synagogues have the men and women separated by partition, but it remains a part of the rules of the synagogue that it is supposed to be separate, men and women are supposed to be separated as instituted by our sages over 2,000 years ago. I have a question. Yes, Carol. So the synagogue that I went to when I grew up, there was only one synagogue in town, this was in mm -hmm. Connecticut. There was a balcony. It had mm -hmm. originally been an Orthodox synagogue, and at that time it was conservative. So um, the um, it wasn't, you know, the women and children sat upstairs, it was whoever. Um, but during the um, high holidays, we had to pay tickets mm -hmm. for seats, and the cheap tickets were up in the balcony. So <laughs> that's where my parents bought their tickets. Thank you for sharing. Now, originally, the, um, clearly, the Torah law requires men and women to be separated in the synagogue. Um, and not doing so would be in violation of the rule made by the Sanhedrin. We, not having a Sanhedrin, don't have the authority to, um, we don't have the authority to undo their rules. Um, and even if we did, the process of doing so would be very difficult. Um, and it may be not a bad idea to keep it as is. Um, and so that's why, yeah, most synagogues would have had these balconies. Today, as I said, they are much less common. Um, having mentioned tickets in synagogues, um, I should, since we're talking about synagogues, I should just give a moment to touch on that. Um, <clears throat> the tickets in the synagogue is a very, very new idea. Um, in general, while synagogues were essentially small communities, and um, a lot of communities essentially within larger towns, communities revolved around synagogues, the organized Jewish community, or the kahal, as it was called in Europe, or kahila, um, was uh, usually city-wide or town-wide. Um, there was a single organized community with its own leadership. Usually it was uh, generally democratic um, with elected leaders. And so um, the community, the synagogues, while within synagogues, kind of small communities within communities, there was never, um, people didn't charge to go to synagogue. Um, and people were never, um, and the synagogues were simply kept up by donations of whoever prayed in the synagogue to the synagogue. Um, and they did a lot of, during, uh, when they gave aliyahs, when they called people up to the Torah, they would often uh, require or ask for donations in honor of the aliyah, or they would sell other honors in the synagogue, and that way they would raise money to fund the synagogue. Um, in, um, here in the United States, we never succeeded in creating the kahal, or the organized community, citywide communities that we had in Europe and the Middle East. And uh, that may perhaps, for good or for bad, we've never succeeded in doing so. So as a result, um, the synagogue was the beginning and end of our local community. The rabbi belonged to the synagogue. In Europe, rabbis were rabbis of towns, not of particular synagogues. Um, and so, um, and so today the rabbi belongs to the synagogue. Often other pr community programs are connected directly to the synagogue, uh, requiring more funding. Um, but a lot of people were, this is already in Europe in the, late, in the late 19th century, a lot of people were turned off by all the fundraising in the synagogue. Um, selling aliyahs, selling other honors, 
And so there was a movement in the late 19th century or even the mid 19th century to stop the fundraising in the synagogue. So one of the ways that a lot of communities have countered that was by charging for membership. So in other words, you paid dues, you paid membership, and as a result, you could only come into the synagogue if you were a member. Um, I think that's wrong. Um, while, yes, we need to support our community, maybe to be part of a community, it's not bad to ask people to become members of the community, but to shut people out of a synagogue because they can't pay or to charge for a seat in the synagogue, I believe is ethically wrong um, because who are we to charge someone to come to pray? What right do we have to ever charge someone to come to pray? And uh, while it can be challenging for synagogues to find themselves a source of income, um, we have been able to support ourselves, thankfully, thanks to the generosity of the community, simply by the donations um, in our community. And uh, it definitely is wrong to charge. Um, I believe it's very wrong for any synagogue to be charging for tickets to be able to go to high holiday services. It's not a show. Um, and it's one that we should never be charging for tickets. Um, charging membership is not a bad thing, um, but charging tickets is definitely wrong. Um, and we, we did a class on that some time ago. It's um, available on our podcast about money in Judaism and um, the role of money in Judaism. So the synagogue is called a mikdash ma'at, or a mini temple. It's God's home in our community. Today there is no temple, so it's God's only home. The only home God has is in, in our world is in synagogues. So as a home dedicated to God, a synagogue must be treated with respect and reverence. Um, that's part of why we separated this, our sages separated men and women because of the holiness of the synagogue to avoid any, um, any inappropriate action in, this, um, in, in the synagogue. And, um, but it must also be treated with general respect and reverence. It has to be kept very clean and well-maintained. It was considered an honorable thing to um, clean the synagogue. Um, we were always very careful never to dirty our synagogue in any way. Um, we're told never to cross through a synagogue <laughs> just to get to the other side, to kind of take a shortcut through the synagogue, um, or go in some, for some personal need that doesn't involve prayer or study um, or some other communal need. In other words, if you need to tell someone something they happen to be in the synagogue, you don't just walk into the synagogue just to pass on a message for a personal need. And if you do, you should stop to say a prayer. Because synagogue is not a place you go into um, just randomly. Um, we also, it's um, forbidden to carry arms um, unless absolutely necessary for protection inside a synagogue because the synagogue is a, is a house of peace. Um, unfortunately, today we live in a time where um, our synagogues have been threatened and there's been too many attacks on synagogues and we do have armed guards um, in front of our synagogue and um, other um, access to arms within our synagogue, but not in the shul itself. Um, but in, if necessary, you are allowed to have it in shul if you do need it for protection. Um, but just walking in with arms because um, you didn't, because you forgot to leave your gun at home, um, or because you like to wear it, um, is forbidden. Uh, we also, whenever we walk through a synagogue, we wear a head covering. Um, both men and women that are, had been married previously should wear a head covering when they enter a synagogue um, as a sign of respect for God, because God's presence is found in the synagogue. It's also forbidden to abandon a synagogue. <laughs> we can't leave or abandon a synagogue, unfortunately, through our long exile, 
We've been forced to abandon many synagogues. We should avoid doing so and try to maintain them whenever possible. We are allowed to sell a synagogue if necessary, um, to build a new one, or if the community has moved away, we are allowed to sell a synagogue and use the proceeds to build other synagogues or for communal purposes. But we, even when we sell a synagogue, we should not sell it if it's going to then be used. We should stipulate in the deed that it should not be used for derogatory things or for um, things that are disrespectful. Um, an example in the Talmud is a tannery, um, is a disrespectful thing. Um, we also should not allow our synagogue to be turned into a house of worship for other religions. And this has been a challenge in this country in particular because a lot of synagogues are zoned as houses of worship. And so when a synagogue is, um, when, a, people, when we want to sell a synagogue, perhaps to buy a bigger one, or maybe because the community moved away, um, it's a challenge because we cannot sell it to another religious group for their house of worship, it's considered disrespectful for our synagogue. We have to figure out a way to change the zoning uh, or to find another synagogue perhaps that would want to buy it. I have about the yes. Don. Do purchase a synagogue or a uh, house of worship from another religion and turn it into a synagogue? We absolutely can't buy a house of worship from another religion and turn it into a synagogue. We have no problem with that. In fact, the JCC where I am right now was originally a church and it was purchased and uh, we turned it into a synagogue. Absolutely. But we don't allow it to go the other way. Carol, did you have another question or it was the same one? I had the same question. <laughs> Excellent. So, uh, Rabbi? Yes. Uh, sorry. Um, going back a few minutes, there was like a Zoom uh, interference. Could you repeat of the place in Babylon where the word galut comes from? The word galut is Hebrew for exile. The town of Naharda'a was the Jewish capital in Babylon. Jews essentially established over time an autonomous state in, within Babylon. Its capital, where it's the exile arc, as he's called, the Resh the prince of the Jews, lived and was based, was in Naharda. It was the capital of the largest city. So it's often referred to in Midrashim, in Talmudic sources, as Gola. Gola just means exile, like Galut, and uh, because it was the center of the exile. Thank you. Sure. So wherever Jews lived, we always built a syn synagogues, and the Talmud tells us we should not live in a place without a synagogue. A Jew needs a place to go to pray. And so we should not move to places unless there's a synagogue nearby. And given that on Shabbat, we have to walk to synagogue, we should always make sure to live within walking distance of a synagogue so that we're able to um, pray in a synagogue. Um, if Jews want to move to a new place, then when we move to a new place, we should immediately establish a synagogue. But though the synagogue has a very important place in Judaism, it's the home of God, and it's the place where we communicate with God. It's a communal place. It's considered very holy. It's second only to a Jewish home. Most of the 613 commandments that we are required to keep are relevant in the Jewish home. While in the synagogue we pray and study Torah, most commandments apply in the home. So the home is in many ways more important than the synagogue. And Judaism, though we have synagogues, is not centered around the synagogue. 
Judaism is centered around the home. Most of Jewish practice is in the home. And while one should go to synagogue, one can fulfill all 613 commandments without ever stepping foot in a synagogue. And although one should ideally pray with a minion and pray in a, in a synagogue, one can fulfill all the commandments um, in theory, without, including prayer itself, without going to shul. And that's because our home is really the main place of um, where Judaism is kept. The synagogue is just the communal thing since community is important as well. Now, even within the communal, communal places, the synagogue is not the top of the list. So when a new community is established, there are other things that are much more important than the synagogue and must be built before the synagogue. The first place that, a, that a, there must be in any place that a Jew lives and, or in any Jewish community is a mikvah. Um, in order for married women uh, to go, be able to go to mikvah um, when they are nida, um, when they have their um, time, when they are um, forbidden, um, as they need, every Jewish community needs to have access to a mikvah. In fact, one of the biggest challenges that we've faced as, or Jews have faced during our current lockdown is that there are many Jews that lived um, in places where they did not have mikvahs. I have a sister-in-law that lives in Tasmania and um, there was, there had been a mikvah there, but it was not in, it was out of, out of use. It had fallen to disrepair, and so they would fly regularly to nearby Jewish community, Melbourne, in order to, and the same is true for many other Jewish communities that did not have mikvahs, and women would fly monthly to um, nearby to be able to go to mikvah. Um, unfortunately, in our current um, lockdowns, especially for a lot of islands, um, are completely on lockdown, because mainly where my sister-in-law lives and my brother um, is totally locked down. You can't get in or out of the island since March, and so um, and so therefore that no no longer allows them to go to mikveh, and as a result, they had to refurbish the mikveh that they had there. They raised a large amount of money very quickly and were able to quickly refurbish it and fill the mikveh, and now they have a functioning mikveh there. And the same is true for uh, many many other Jewish communities around the world um, that were forced to um, build a mikveh now, but in general, the first most important thing that a community needs is a mikveh. Uh, <coughs> Next among the list, um, every Jewish community must have schools for their children, must have a place where children are able to study about Judaism. You cannot have every Jew, every community has a requirement to ensure that the children have access to Jewish education. And so, we, before anything, after a mikvah, we must invest everything we can in making sure that we have schools and adequate Jewish education. Then a community has to make sure they have a charity fund to include, to care for anyone within the community that is in need. And finally, after all that, a community has to build a synagogue as well. So yes, synagogues are important, are the center of the community, but there are other more important things to the synagogue, the mikveh, the schools, the caring for those in need do take precedence over the synagogue. For the synagogue is a holy place and a place where God's presence is found. Our sages say that the shekhinah, the presence, can be found today um, in a synagogue, which is a mikdash ma'at, a small, temp, a small, a mini temple. And so uh, we still <laughs> treat it with reverence. And it, we are told that whenever we go to the synagogue and pray, God will always listen to our prayers.